0: good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's an honor to be here and to share God's Word with you. I'll be in the book of Acts in a moment, Acts chapter 2, if you would like to turn there. As you're turning, I ask you a question, do you remember normal? You know, life pre-COVID, if you will? In a brief three-year span, so much of our life has changed, our world, our lives, how we live, how we work, how we play, how we shop, and how we worship. And I think it's safe to say that we've adapted to a new normal, if you will. What we're going to look at today is, I'm sure we're all familiar with, in Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. And as a pastor for, like you said, over 30 years, and looking at the church today, I think Pentecost is a very powerful reminder of how far the church has been removed from its fundamental foundations, how we've shifted and modified what we do. Believe the church today has been remade, it's been tailored to meet our wants instead of our needs. We go back and we understand the early church they met in house churches. They were much more evangelistic in their teaching and preaching and sharing. They did not tolerate open sin among the church. They wanted people to repent, come to Christ. So I believe that those who made up that early, that first church had an open zeal, a love an effective, fruitful kingdom ministry that resulted in real-life change, eternal change, eternity-altering change. It impacted the lives of people in their community and individually. People we're going to look at today are people who turned the world upside down. Did they not? Sad to say, I believe today's church has flipped the script And we've turned the church right side up. I believe we're living pre-Pentecost. Old normal, if you will. When we should be living Pentecost. New normal. I mean, what in the world would Peter think of our 21st century church? I think he would scratch his head and ask, what in the world are you doing? I'm sure you're familiar with the book of Acts, like I've said. We're going through it at Stevensburg. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples meet with Jesus in Jerusalem. He ascends and they watch him ascend. They go back to Jerusalem, meet with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Jesus had told them to wait, which they do, and as they're waiting, they pray. They go about church business, and while they're doing that, suddenly we know the Holy Spirit fell upon them, right? And there was noise, not quiet like this morning. (laughs) I mean, noise, fire, wind that got not only their attention, but everyone in the community that was there inside the building, outside the building, people aware, hey, something is happening with the disciples. Something's happening that has not happened before. We need to see what's happening. Some of the in the crowd saying, well, no, what's happening down there? They got into the, the wine a little bit too early this morning, and they're, they're drunk and having an early party. And Peter begins to stand up and preach along with the other disciples and begin to tell them what's going to go, what's happening, what's really taking place. I'm not going to read the whole sermon, I'm going to pick it up kind of after the sermon and we're going to go back and review some of the things that he said. But if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, we're going to pick it up this morning, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they had heard this, being Peter's sermon, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. With many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had been received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we get too far in the text, I think it's important to understand who Peter is talking to. Who is he addressing in this text? What is taking place? Well, This message was given by a Jew. It's being preached on a Jewish holy day. It's about the resurrection of a Jewish Messiah who, we're going to learn, these people he's talking to had crucified. At the time, these are the most faithful, most devout people on planet Earth. Very religious, seriously devoted and religious, God-fearing people. So in other words, this is not your average Mr. and Mrs. Johnny Q. churchgoer. These are not idol-worshiping pagans. These are people who thought and truly believed in their heart, hey, we are living the right way. We are doing the right thing. If you will, these were people who went to church on a regular basis, assuming that they and God had a good thing going on. So outwardly, they were faithful. But inwardly, they had the hardest of hearts. These are the people who had passed by the cross of Christ Earlier and had despised, who had abused, who had insulted him. They wagged their heads and they pointed their fingers and said, Hey, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, you come down off that cross. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. These are the ones who had called Christ a deceiver. These are the ones who had said, hey, you are demon-possessed. You're insane, man. These are probably some of the very likely ones who had, who had been calling for the release of a murderer named Barabbas instead of their messiah. These are the people who had been so hearted as to take Jesus, God's son, and with their wicked hearts crucify him on a tree. That's the people Peter is speaking to. Thousands of routinely religious yet hard-hearted people. What I love about Peter's sermon it is very plain, it's pertinent, and boy, is it personal, and boy, does it get pointed. It's simple. It's uncomplicated. He preaches a sermon with words that even a child could understand. I find it refreshing as Peter preaches this sermon. He's not trying to impress anyone with his oratorical ability. He doesn't use a vocabulary that only those in the crowd who have a Greek lexicon and a Greek dictionary could understand. No. His message is down to earth. You know, right where I live. And it's firmly founded on the Word of God, and it is firmly focused on the living Word, Jesus Christ. Peter simply preached Jesus. That's it. Which, by the way, is the goal of all evangelical or evangelistic preaching. Jesus, right? Christ-centered preaching that connects all those who are listening with Jesus' life, His death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and to do so clearly so that everyone listening are not scratching their heads and saying, what did he just say? No, they clearly understand what you're saying. Peter does that. We'll say, well, how does he do it? Well, if you read the sermon, he, pre- he presents evidence very clearly that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, which is very important. He's starting at verses 22 and 24. We can read those together if you like. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, And put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Amen? So starting there at verse 22, Peter engages his listeners' attention by asking them, Look, I want you just to think back to what you know about Jesus. Just think for a moment. He says, look, you know about this man. You know about Jesus. You know his life. You saw his ministry. You know the miracles he did. You know about his death. You just saw him crucified not too many days ago. Surprise! God has raised him from the dead. We? Me, these disciples, we saw Him. We saw Him. We watched Him ascend. And we know today He's sitting at the right hand of the Father until His return. And He has ascended, and what we're witnessing today is the outpouring of the Spirit, which is now being poured upon us, the event you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And by the way, this is the Jesus whom you killed. How would you take that? Now, to really understand what's happening here, we're going to go back one verse, to verse 36. Peter, preaching inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's got the greatest line, I believe, of any sermon I've ever heard preached. This is a very powerful, pointed, what I'm going to call a pithy punchline. Listen to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. man. Therefore is a term of conclusion. And man, what a conclusion this is. Jesus, uh, Peter is saying, based on the life and the evidence of Jesus' life, death and resurrection and exaltation, you need to know something for certain. I mean, this is fact. You need to know for sure. You need to take it to the bank that this Jesus whom you killed, he's not just a man. He's not just one of us. This Jesus whom you killed is both Lord and Christ. And every sermon you're going to read in Acts, and from here on, they're going to say that over and over and over again. So usually if a writer or a preacher or someone is speaking, if they're, you know, repeating themselves a lot, either they've lost their place (laughs) or there's a point they want to drive home. I think the latter is the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ, Messiah, Lord, Savior, Lord. You say, why is that important? Why would Peter preach that? And why would they preach that continually? Well, you see, pre-Pentecost, old normal, all the Jews had understand, understood the Lord to be God the Father, the Father. Peter is now saying and urging them and arguing that the Lord, the name to be called upon, is instead Jesus. He's saying, look, Jesus has the same authority as the Father. Now, if you had been sitting there or standing there, and you hear Peter preach this, and it begins to dawn on you, we've just murdered Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. Suddenly, they're shaking in the core of their being, wouldn't you? Think about it. There's three, at least 3,000 of them Anyway are shaken and shocked into the reality suddenly of a word we don't use much anymore, and the word is guilt. They're guilty before God. Suddenly it's begin to sink in on them. We are party, look, uh, we are party to the murder of the Lord and Messiah, the one who is sent by God himself, the one who is God. And as soon as Peter stated that fact that Jesus is Lord and Christ, every person listening that day and today has to deal with the one who is truly God. And this is always what happens when the Holy Spirit is at work. Holy Spirit makes us aware of the lordship of Jesus Christ, of the fact that Jesus is Lord. You're not. Jesus is Lord. And by the way, Jesus is Lord whether you know it or not. All human beings who've ever been born into this world are one day going to have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord at what we call, and we know, and don't like to think about, the judgment. Whether you believe in him in this world or not, you are going to bow on your knee at the judgment, and you are going to confess, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. It's not optional. And suddenly and impactfully the full force of Peter's sermon hit its mark, their hearts. And they realize, hey, we're in a precarious position here. And they ask a life-altering question. Let's look again at verse 37. When they heard this, They are pierced to their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Instead of covering their ears in exasperation and, and, uh, and in hatred, screaming at Peter to shut your mouth like they did to Stephen, we read, when they heard this, they were pierced in their hearts. Now, that word pierced means to sting sharply, to stun or to smite, to be stabbed, to be greatly agitated and troubled. All at once, 3,000 people in this crowd are stung, stymied, if you will, stabbed, agitated because of Peter's Christ-centered preaching. They are shaken to their core. Is that the effect that God's words preached or read have on you? How long has it been since you've been pierced in the heart by the word of God? I had to ask, what in the world changed with these people? What's going on? What suddenly changed? Remember, these are the people who had seen Jesus in real life, real time. They had heard his claims about being the Messiah from his own lips, to, from his lips to their ears. They saw him perform miracles. Perhaps some in the crowd are the ones who were recipients of those miracles. I would venture to guess that some of the crowd are some of the 500 who saw Jesus after his resurrection. Now, all those previous life encounters did not change them one iota, didn't move them, nothing. My question is, how can a heart that was so impenetrable before be pierced now? What in the world happened? How does that make any sense at all? The answer? God's grace. God's grace now being worked through the gospel priest, pressed and pierced to the heart by the Holy Spirit, that produces the change. We read again, they're pierced. We understand the word pierced. They're pierced in their what? Heart. Is that our... Thumping gizzard, that's what's in there. Is that what they're talking about? And if by heart we just simply mean, you know, our feelings and our emotions as opposed to our intellect and our mind, well, that's not biblical. That's not in harmony with the Scriptures. That's a human idea. That's Valentine's Day. You know, Cupid, draw back your bow, let your air flow. I won't sing it. where, you know, Cupid draws back his bow and he shoots that little red or pink arrow and, if, you know, it pierces your heart and suddenly you are smitten, lovesick. That's not here. That's just identifying our heart with emotions and feelings. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we read, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring of life. Why do I need to watch over my heart? My heart. Because the heart, biblically, is the core of one's being. It's your operating system, if you will. It's the operating system of your real life. It's the supply source of all my real life and how my real life flows out of it. It's who I am. The heart is not simply emotions and feelings. That's not what we're talking about here. The heart is the means. It's the starting place of what I think, my attitude. It's the determination of my will. That's my heart. It's the supply location out of which everything flows. It delivers one's real life in real time, and it's what we are knowingly living before God is who we are. Now, these people are living out of a desperately sick, hard heart. These people were just a few minutes ago insensitive to their own sin. They were unbelieving and indifferent toward God. Now, they're abruptly shaken to the very core of their heart. Their operating system is being penetrated. It's being hacked, if you will. And these people are pierced deep within their heart, and they begin to sincerely cry out in the consciousness now of their guilt and their sin. We, Peter, we're guilty. We're guilty. We've thought wrongly about Jesus. We rejected him. We killed him. So, brethren... Brethren, we know our position. We read there that he, verse 34, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. We know what can happen to us. What shall we do? What are we going to do? Is there anything we can do to change this? See, to know the blessings of forgiveness, we need to experience the burden Of guilt. By the way, whatever happened to guilt? Someone said a good case of guilt is a healthy thing when we've sinned. That's true. Now, we like to distinguish between guilt and guilt feelings, but guilt is objective, it has nothing to do with your feelings whatsoever. Guilt is an objective state that we incur when we break the law of God, whether you know it or not. You've broken the law of God, you're guilty. You may not feel guilty, but you are guilty. Doesn't matter how we feel. And the only cure for guilt is forgiveness. (laughs) But that's the last resort we seek, isn't it? When we're burdened by by guilt, what do we usually do? We deny it or excuse it. God, that really wasn't a sin. No, 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 no. So many of my friends are doing the same thing, so it can't possibly be a sin. Even my church friends are doing it. It can't be a sin if they're doing it, can it? I mean, everybody's doing it. That's acceptable in our culture and in our church. Everyone. And the other problem with sin is, uh, is that our guilt is the more that we repeat or deny or rationalize our sin, you know what happens to our operating system? It becomes callous and hard. It no longer even feels guilty. We sin without punishment. even thinking about it. it has no effect on us in the book of Jeremiah verse 3 3 he writes what he describes and what we develop as we cover over our guilt he says as the forehead of a harlot and we refuse to be ashamed The four have a harlot, and we refuse to be ashamed. Other words, we've lost the capacity to feel guilty and to feel sin and to blush, even blush at our sin. Now, before we pile up too much guilt here, let me remind you that guilt for the most part is very constructive. As I travel around, I'm from originally from Loudoun County. There was a lot of farms there. Not so many anymore of all the building that's there. That's why Cindy and I are here. We love uh, Culpeper County. We drive around. We just get out. We're crazy. We just get out and drive on the roads. There's nobody on the roads. Not like Loudoun County. We just drive around, see what's happening out there. And I see a lot of farms. And I see something else that I'm very familiar with, and that's electric fences. I don't know if you've... I used to go fishing with my grandmother on farm, and you know the farmers again put up those electric fences in there to keep the cows in and to keep people from fishing in their ponds. But my, fortunately, my grandfather and grandmother knew the farmers so we could go fish on their, uh, on their farms. But to get to the pond, you had to cross the electric fence. Anybody ever touched an electric fence? If you have, Sorry. If you haven't, don't. that's all I can say. Don't don't. See, when you, a guilt is like that electric fence. It gives you, a, when you touch it, it gives you a jolt that let you know you're, you're straying beyond the boundaries of what God set up for your life. It sends a jolt, it sends an alarm to wake us up. Hey, something needs attention in your spiritual life. And like a piercing pain, guilt tells us, "Hey, something is wrong. Something is wrong in your spiritual life." When I, my grandmother, I was the guinea pig. I got—I didn't learn all the tricks that I know. You're supposed to take a weed and touch the electric fence, and the weed will melt and burn up. And that kind of, I didn't know that, so you know, I was ten or twelve. I don't know. And what did I do? Go ahead, Bob. Touch it. As an immediate. Your, your body feels it and it's immediate. I mean you you feel it, you move. just like guilt. When you feel guilt, don't just sit there, respond. Do something about it. Don't shrug it off as a as a, a way. Let it drive you to the cross where God will pour out His mercy and forgiveness on your life. Amen. To choose truly something about it, we need what we're going to call the sudden impact of a God encounter. That's what's happening in the book of Acts chapter 2, a sudden impact of a God encounter. How long has it been since we've had a sudden impact of a God encounter? Not manufactured by the church or a worship team or a preacher. God just breaks in unexpectedly and shows up and everything's changed. A God encounter. Well, it will force us from our guilt. Force us out of the dark closet of our life and cause us to deal with it before God. The piercing of our heart is a saving work. It's God saying, I love you. I love you. It begins in the innermost being of our lives. And it begins with the principle of another word we don't use much anymore. And that word is the conviction of sin. Why are you going to talk about guilt and conviction? Sorry. Yes, I am. See, before we can ever be forgiven, can ever enjoy the blessings of forgiveness, we have to come under what's called Holy Spirit Conviction. So you can never be saved, you can never be forgiven until you, God opens your eyes to what you are, not what your friends tell you you are, to what God tells you you are and who you really need. You say, well, what's conviction? Haven't heard that for a while. Well, it's God himself taking the necessary steps to persuade and convince you That his claims concerning Jesus and his claims concerning you are true. And when I'm convicted, you know what happens? My good opinion about myself is not there anymore. It's gone. My confidence in myself, gone. Denial of my guilt is impossible. I can no longer continue living in this guilt and denial. And my sin, what is it? I have rejected the only good thing I could possibly have in my life, and I have rejected Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm guilty before God. You know what I have to do? I must confess my sin. It's God bringing you to the place where you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, and you know Jesus Christ is my only. Now, while many in the crowd are being convicted, they're asking the question, what shall we do? Peter gives them something to do in verses 38 through 40. In those verses, Peter tells them how to be converted. He says, this is how we become a Christian. This is what we are to do when we're aware of the fact that our lives our spiritual lives are out of harmony with the Word of God and the truth of God, with His way and with His life, then there's something you're to do. There's two things we do, there's one thing God does. You notice there, He says, Brethren, what are we to do? Verse 38 repent. Good night, preacher. Guilt, conviction, repent. What are you doing? Conviction, repenting. He tells them very plainly, this is how you become a Christian. This is, by the way, the first sermon ever preached in the early church. He says, when you come to the place, you're out of harmony, here's what you need to do, repent. And repent is a word that's greatly understood. Misunderstood. Most people think, you know, repentance is I feel sorry and I cry and I weep. I shed some tears. I'm sorry. Crying and weeping, that's not necessary. And crying and weeping doesn't mean you've repented. You may be sorry, but you haven't repented. By the way, repentance is the first phase of believing in Jesus Christ, truly. And it appears a lot, I know you've read it in the New Testament, and it appears a whole lot in the book of Acts. Repent is a word, and it means to change our minds, to change our thinking. Repentance and conversion have what we're going to call a from and to component or movement. Movement. One goes from an old way of thinking, from an old way of living in which we've denied God and, and we've ignored and resented Him and re- reviewed Him as harsh. And now with our life changed, our heart changed, our operating system changed, we go to a new life based on faith in the Lord who wants to save us rather than punish us. But what's Peter referring to when he tells them to repent? What's the sin? What's going on? Remember, these are the most devout people on earth at the time. Peter tells them, you have to repent by asking them to enter into a new relationship with Jesus as their resurrected Savior and Lord. Very important, both. Lord and Savior. I mean, the whole context of his sermon makes it very clear. Remember, he pointed to them, Jesus, all the miracles, whom you rejected, whom your leaders killed, whom you murdered, he hammers away at that point over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and people, you must put your faith in him. What are they repenting of? They're wrong thinking. The wrong idea, the rejection of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. So look, I want you to change your mind about Jesus. I want you to experience him. I want you to accept him as Savior. I want you to place your total faith and life in him. See, genuine repentance is not just, you know what I'll do? I'll just turn over a new leaf. Christianity is not something that we just add to our life. Christianity is not just a costume that we put on to cover up a continual life of sin. No. It's a rejection of the old life of sin and the embracing of a new life in Jesus Christ. In other words, genuine repentance takes place by the work of grace, by the Holy Spirit, in the heart of a sinner and makes him or her desire to be a new creature in Christ. It's a want-to. The second thing he tells them, look, you need to be baptized. Be baptized, verse 38. Now, baptism does not add anything to our repentance, nothing. Baptism does not make you better. uh, Baptism doesn't do anything magical, if you will, for you. So that, you know, I'm baptized. Well, I'm suddenly forgiven of my sins. No, that should have happened prior. He tells them, I want you to be baptized because you know what? I want you to make a public statement before all your friends, your family, your acquaintances, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Tell them. Boldly tell them. Take a stand for Jesus Christ in front of your enemies. Stand up. See, unlike the way the gospel is preached so often today, you know, accepting Jesus, that's easy. It's just easy. Peter's making it a little more difficult. He wants them to know that the cost for receiving Christ is high. But isn't forgiveness of sins and eternal life worth the cost? Salvation's free, yes, but didn't it cost Jesus his life? It's gonna cost our lives as well. I might maybe martyrdom, I don't know, but it's a life that we thought we wanted to live, that the devil's put this is what you want to do. It's what all the commercials tell us we need to do and have and buy that life to a life that's joyful in Christ. Baptism, I'm hourly declaring, it's a symbol. I've changed my mind about Jesus. And I want to experience him in my life. I'm openly identifying my life with Jesus. I'm telling everybody, hey, I now belong to Jesus. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own anymore. I belong to Christ. And I'm going to follow him. I'm one of his. What a testimony. Again, repentance, cutting off the old way of thinking, beginning a new life, changing your mind about Jesus Christ. That enables God to wipe out all your guilt and all your sins of the past. Who doesn't need that? And baptism is a sign that that has been accomplished. It's a mark of a beginning of a new life. Look at verse 38 again. And when you repent, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Well, who is that? Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. What's he going to do? He's going to come and live in you. And his work in you is going to make Jesus Christ real to you. Not some fictional character in a book. Real. Visible. Plain. Close to you. He's going to impart his life into your life. Who doesn't need that? This is what happens when you repent. What a gift. Did you do anything to earn that gift? Did not. And notice, it's according to those whom God calls. Repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That's a remarkable statement. So, a lot of times we give flawed testimonies. It goes like this When I found Christ, no, Christ found you. You weren't looking for him. He found you. If you have in your heart right now a hunger to know God, and you think it's a desire that you have to find answers and to your questions and to seek a new relationship, and you think that started with you? think again. It started with God. God the Father is working on you, drawing you, calling you from this perverse generation. Jesus on one occasion in John chapter 6, no man comes to the Father except, no man come unto me except my Father what? Draw him. Pulls him or her. And right now, God is... Holy Spirit in this room is drawing right now, in this room, drawing people to Him. Right now. Verse 41. What happens when all this takes place? Man, what a day. So then, those who had received His words, again, they heard, they obeyed, they accepted, they uh, applied them, they repented, they were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Man. Notice the apostle Peter did not sugarcoat the gospel. He did not make it palatable to his audience. He didn't soften the truth. You know, Peter, weren't you afraid of hurting people's feelings? Weren't you afraid of offending their sensibilities, Peter? No, I was not. Preaching Christ. He told them the truth about Jesus. He told them the truth about themselves. How many people? 3,000 people. You ever seen that many people repent and be saved and baptized on the same day? And it's going to happen over and over again in the new normal. Oh, how we need the sudden impact of a God encounter. You see, when the church gathers, it's not a bunch of good people who are gathering. The Bible says what? There are no good people. What does he tell us we are? Sinners. So sin is not far removed this morning it's not remote and far it's not outside the walls where is it it's right here sits in this room among hurting people again in verse 38 peter says repent each of you each of you he's talking to every single person in that crowd each of you means each and every one individually personally he's saying look we all struggle with sin If you're an unbeliever here today, we're glad you're here. Have you been rejecting and denying and and, uh, not really, you know, believing in this character called Jesus? Well, I can tell you because I was an unbeliever, unbelievers struggle with sin. Not only that, if you're a saint... The saint here today struggles with sin. So let's all just agree, all of us in this room struggle with sin. We all struggle with some failure of sin. What's the question? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We all know, don't we? Has God spoken to you this week, weeks prior, today, through this passage? Not through this preacher, through this passage? My friend today, if you're under guilt and the conviction of guilt and you know that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and he, and you know you're a sinner in need of a Savior, what are you to do? Call out to Jesus. Call out. Hey, you can be saved today. Maybe you have a professed relationship. I mean, you, you know, you've got a standing. You have a professed relationship with Jesus You had that at some point, but your life doesn't quite measure up to that now. It doesn't line up with what the Bible says about being saved. Hey, you can receive the real thing today. Call out to Jesus. What must I do? Maybe you're saved. You become slack in your new life, and you want things to be like they used to be. What do you do? Say it. Call out to Jesus. Peter preached this message, the first message in the church. 3,000 people were saved. I don't expect that to happen today. Maybe I should. However, I do expect God to honor his word. And I humbly ask you to listen to the Spirit and respond to him if he's spoken to you. You can be free from your guilt today and every day hereafter. There's no greater blessing in your life than having your sins forgiven and not counted against you by the Lord. No greater blessing. I know I'm not a member of this church, but we're all brothers and sisters in Christ And I believe that God wants to save someone here today. Is it you? That blessing is available to you right now if you will confess your sins. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word God's Word written. I thank you that the Apostle Peter did not pull any punches. He forced us to look first at you. And when we look at you, suddenly we see ourselves for what we are. So as we conclude this hour, may we do just that. May we run to the rock of ages that cleft for me. Again, if you're an unbeliever, repent. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Confess and receive Jesus Christ into your heart and life. Holy Spirit, you've been working. Continue your work as we continue our worship. Amen.